Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. A warm welcome to all who are listening to this studio broadcast of the next segment in our series in which we are exploring the issue of accessing the grace of God. This is a studio recording because the live recording for this particular session did not come out too clearly. So I have chosen to record this via a studio broadcast. We're going to explore in this session the importance of drawing near to God by the disposition and the act of prayer and how that this affords one the capacity to find more grace from the Lord. Now, grace is given by God. It has its source in God and its intended destination is you and I, the sons of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So the Macedonians were the recipients of grace given. Paul is very clear here, the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So there's the giving out of grace and the reception of grace. The giving out is God's part. The reception is is our part. Now, as we've painstakingly illustrated in our earlier sessions in in the current series, that grace is both merited and unmerited favor. The, The traditional view of grace only as unmerited favor is true only from the perspective of the sinner that needs that grace, the first expression of which is mercy, whereby our sins are forgiven and the consequences of sin removed and we find entrance into the kingdom of God. But once in the kingdom, there are various uh, dispositions, certain attitudes, mentalities, internal dispositions and external behavioral patterns that we have to adopt in order to attract more grace to us and for example i've said in the past that uh, god will give all grace to the generous giver so a person that is generous in his giving will attract according to second corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8 god is able to make all grace abound to that individual one of the dispositions that certainly will recruit more grace unto yourself is a strong disposition in prayer. So I want to talk in this particular broadcast of the necessity to draw near to God in a disposition and act of prayer and how that this will increase your grace content. Now, James 4, verse 6 to 8 says the following, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So in this particular text, in framing a context uh, in which greater grace attends humility, humility itself is set forth in two expressions. Those two expressions are number one, submission unto God. So immediately after Paul's or, or, or James says that God gives grace to the humble, immediately he says, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. So submission unto God is set forth in this context as an expression of humility. You're not humble until you are submitted to God and to principles that God has set in his kingdom and to his personnel, his servants that he has positioned in your life to give oversight to your soul. But secondly, the second expression 
in which humility is set forth in these verses is captured by the phrase, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, one of the greatest ways in which we denote even our submission to God is through the act of praying to him. Because prayer is one of the most powerful expressions of spiritual warfare that can cause retreat of our enemy. Notice in the verse, it says, God gives grace to the humble, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So you cannot resist the devil unless you are firstly submitted to God. In the order of things, it says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission is not only prerequisite to the effective resistance of the devil such that he will flee, but also to submission itself is resistance of the devil. Now, one of the ways in which we can express the submission that literally is an act of spiritual warfare because it resists the devil, one of the ways that we express this submission is by the act of prayer. Now, prayer is a submitted life. Prayer is a very powerful expression of spiritual warfare in and of itself. When you study Ephesians chapter 6, uh, wherein after the armor of the believer is described in, in, in somewhat great detail, the imperative to praying at all times is commanded immediately after the armory of the believer is listed. So I will encourage you to read this text in Ephesians chapter 6. Thus, submission to God through prayer resists the devil, thereby making grace available for the execution of God's will unhinderedly. Now, similarly, drawing near to God is, a, is practically demonstrated by prayer. Notice the imperative in James 4, verse 8 is, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And all of this is couched in terms of the authority that the believer has in his submitted disposition to resist the devil. Draw near to God. I want to emphasize, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in this context, great grace is promised because this prayer would be an expression of a submitted life, therefore denoting humility to which grace is attracted. Now, drawing near to God indicates humility, like I've said. The scriptures are awash with replete examples of how that prayer is an expression of humility. I will just cite a few examples here for the sake of time. Now, prayer denotes dependence upon God. Therefore, prayerlessness suggests independence of God and thus reflects pride. When we pray, what we are saying to God is, I need you, I depend on you cannot exist without you. I rely exclusively upon you. When we are prayerless, what we are communicating is, I can do it on my own. I'm a self-made man, self-made individual. I can survive without prayer. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 says, My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Notice in this text, God puts the two positions side by side, one being the expression of the other. That being, my people, first, number one, humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face. So prayer is an expression of humility or humility is a prerequisite to the prayer for life. Now, I want to encourage you, when you discern that God is speaking to you about more concentrated and focused times of intense prayer, that indeed you must respond to Him by drawing near to Him to seek His face. Uh, do not ignore this prompting, but respond by deliberate prayer, because usually this is preparatory to, to some significant aspect of His will, concerning you uh, or involving you. Uh, 
For example, in Psalm 27 and verse 8, David said, when you said, this is him speaking to God. So he says, when you said, seek my face, he responds, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. So we must respond to these promptings of God to seek him. And prayer is one of the most powerful ways in which we can do this. Another scripture citing drawing near to God as necessary for finding grace is Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. It says the following, Therefore let us draw near, notice the emphasis again, draw near, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace. Notice the emphasis, find grace to help in time of need. Now notice the prerequisites here. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in order to find grace in a particular uh, era or time frame called time of need. And this finding grace will assist or help us in this time of need. Now the word finding or find in the, the phrase find grace, it denotes an intentional searching after, some, after something that is born out of deep hunger and thirst for it. Simply because we place high value on the thing. Now if we place high value on grace, we must search for it and find it, seek ways to access it. And Hebrews 4, 16 says that we must draw near to a throne of grace to find grace. We must adopt a searching and a thirst after it. Such must be our disposition towards the grace of God. We must eagerly desire more of it because we deem it highly invaluable. Now, here are some scriptural examples of people in the Bible who literally found grace. I will just list these for the sake of time. Genesis 6 verse 8 says, But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Acts 7 verse 46 says, David found favor or grace in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. In Exodus 33 Verse 12 and 13, it indicates that Moses too found grace. The text says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor, which is grace, in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found Favor in your sight. Let me know your ways that I might know you so that I might find favor or grace in your sight. And consider too that this nation is your people. Again in Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, the scriptures indicate that Mary too found grace. It says the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace or favor with God. Now Matthew 7 Verse 7 and 8 denotes that those who seek will find. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The terms ask, seek and knock uh, traditionally have denoted dispositions in prayer. So Hebrews 4 encourage us, encourages us to draw near to God, and to find grace. So if we seek after grace, we certainly will find it. The terms ask, seek, and knock denote dispositions in prayer. Psalm 119 verse 58, the psalmist said, I sought your favor, which is grace, with all of my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. If we seek him, with all of our hearts, we will find Him. If we seek after His grace, He will be gracious to us. But it does require a seeking. And I'm suggesting in this broadcast that this seeking is through ardent prayer. 
Not only will God be found of us as we seek Him with grace, but He will also restore things lost to us. Here's an interesting and encouraging verse. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 and 14a says the following, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. Now when we seek after God, He will be found of us. But when we seek after Him diligently, He is not only found of or by us, but He greatly rewards us. And this you will find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. This is from the King James Version. God rewards those who diligently seek Him. If you compare the text, it says first in Jeremiah, if you seek Him, He will be found. But Hebrews 11.6 says, if you diligently seek Him, which is in more intensified form, more focused form of seeking, you will not only find Him, but that He will reward you. So the intensity of the search <coughs> excuse me, determines the specific response from the Lord. So we have the seeker and we have the diligent seeker. May I encourage you to become an ardent, passionate seeker after God by drawing near to Him in deep prayer. Grace, great grace, will be found. In James 4 verse 8, clearly indicates that God will draw near to you if you draw near to Him. So if you take the initiative of drawing near to Him, He will respond commensurately by drawing near to you. So every initiative taken on your part to draw near to God is met by an equal, if not greater, initiative on God's part to draw near to you. Thus, one step taken in desire closer to God is actually two steps. For the other step is taken by God Himself, a step on His part which is activated in response to your initial step. So I want to encourage you, James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. If you draw near, He comes to you. He will draw near to you with grace to be found and accessed by you. So the imperative in, in Hebrews 4.15 is, let us draw near. I want to I emphasize it. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. And this implies a posture of prayer and supplication, a request for grace, uh, expressed through God releasing His nature and power as your help in times of, of need. This is another key for accessing grace. If grace is given, then prayer can be made for more of it. Ask and it will be given to you. We are encouraged to find grace. This implies a search and a seeking after it, as I have said. And we can access grace, amongst other factors, by the act of prayer. Now, I want to demonstrate this more fully from the scriptures. I want to speak about praying and supplicating for grace or favor. Now, Psalm 86 verse 15 and 16a says the following, But to you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Notice the request of the psalmist. He first sets forth God's nature as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Then the request, a supplication is made, turn to me and be gracious to me. Now, the Greek word translated in English as grace is charis or charis or most often pronounced charis. But in the Old Testament, there are two words translated as grace. The most often word used is the Hebrew hen or chen. 
But there is another word also translated grace, and that word is tekina. And tekina literally means a supplication for grace or a request for grace. So it implies an asking. It implies an inquiry after, an entreaty for more grace. Let me just illustrate this usage of this word in some Old Testament passages for us. When Ezra led the third wave of exiles from Babylonian captivity, and before they left, they gathered at a river and they prayed and fasted for God to be merciful, to grant them favor upon their journey. And Ezra says this in Ezra 9 verse 8, But for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a pig in his holy place that our God might enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. The word grace in this text is tekina and not hen or chen. So he says, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord. The word grace here, tekina, literally means we have supplicated for it. And the Lord has granted grace and favor, the outworking of which in his context would be a return to accuracy, a return to, to Jerusalem, which symbolically depicts a place of spiritual accuracy in their context. Now, most often you will see this word tekina, translated as grace, used, um, I think, seven or eight times in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple after it was built. And you'll find this in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's a fairly long chapter. I won't read it here, but I would ask you to note the following verses. In the following verses... The reference to grace there, where Solomon makes requests for the grace of God, the reference to grace there is tekina, which literally means I supplicate for it. I, I inquire after more of it to be bestowed upon us. Those verses are verse 28, 30, 38, 45, 49, 52, and 54. So Solomon requests for grace. At the end of his prayer, the glory of God filled the temple. The glory is the outward manifestation of the exact nature of God as we've taught in a prior session. But undergirding glory is grace. John 1 says of Christ that John says we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. So you cannot have glory unless it's undergirded by grace and truth. So it's not coincidental here in Solomon's prayer that after he prays for grace, glory fills the temple because God filled the house first with grace manifested in outward glory. So any prayer for grace will result in a glory which is God's nature, reputation displayed in you. Now also too, in the book of Zechariah, it has been prophesied that the house of David, which is a type of the church, that in this house of David, the feeblest of souls, the weakest of souls, will be as mighty as David was himself, and that the house of David will be like the house of God himself. And implied is that because God will pour out on this house of David, which is the church, a spirit of grace and supplication. I want to read the text. It's Zechariah chapter 12 from verse 8 to 10. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, and the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And here's the text in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now note, two things are going to be poured out on the house of David, a type of the end time church. 
the spirit of grace and supplication. Now note, the, the most weakest person in this group will be as strong as David was. If the weakest is as strong as David, what will be the strongest among them? Far superior than David. And it says their corporate compliments will be like unto God himself. So the corporate disposition of this house, the corporate uh, communal representation of this house as one body will be thoroughly reflective of the Lord. Now for those two things to happen, the house has got to be filled with two things. The spirit of grace, which is the essential nature and constituent element of God himself, and the spirit of supplication. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word for supplication in this verse is tahanun. Now, tahanun is a Hebrew word that is closely akin to tekina, translated grace, meaning a supplication for grace. And this word supplication, tahanun, literally means earnest prayer or entreaty, a supplication for for favor. Um, in my PDF study notes on this topic that we're dealing with on my website, in the end note, I have listed several verses which demonstrate the use of this word. I will not go through that now because for the sake of time. But the principle I simply want to demonstrate from this text is this. God, who is spirit, is a spirit of grace. Uh, a spirit whose compositional makeup is grace. This spirit will be poured out on a Davidic company, the house of God, to make them as strong as God himself. But according to the verse cited here, this occurs within a house upon whom the spirit of supplication or earnest prayer is poured on as well. So the Holy Spirit is not simply a spirit of grace, but is also a spirit of supplication or intercession as well. Now two verses in this respect are apt here. These verses demonstrate that the, the spirit is a spirit of prayer, supplication and intercession. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit of God is an intercessory spirit. He's a praying spirit. And He helps us to pray um, in our weaknesses according to the will of God because He knows the mind of God. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. So true prayer is a function of my human spirit aided by the Spirit, praying in and through me, such that when I pray with all prayer and all kinds of prayer, that my prayer would then be in the Spirit, who is a Spirit of prayer. So God's promise to us is, is you know, pour out upon the house of David a Spirit of grace and supplication. And when we supplicate and entreat God for more grace, this grace makes the house strong, as strong as David's house was. And the corporate result of this would be even the weakest among us is as strong as David. And our corporate communal expression would be as God himself. Now, as we, as we proceed, consider two individuals, one from the New Testament and Old Testament, both of whose names mean grace, and consider their strength in prayer. The individuals are Hannah, the mother of Samuel from the Old Covenant, and Anna, the prophetess who functioned in the temple at the time of Jesus' dedication in the temple. Let me read the text. 
Let's first explore Anna. Luke 2, verse 38 to, verse, sorry, verse 36 to 38. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84. Verse 37, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Plural. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Notice in verse 37, she served God. Other versions say she worshipped God night and day with fastings and with prayers. So she was a woman of deep prayer and she prayed often with all kinds of prayer coupled with fasting. Now the word Anna means grace. So she, therefore we can conclude she was the embodiment of the grace of God as her name suggests. Now strong prayer with fasting was a complete expression of worship and service to God. So the two are linked, her disposition in strong prayer with fasting and the fact that she personally is the embodiment of grace as a name is suggestive of a nature. Now, the Son of God, I want to stress, who immerses him or herself in strong prayer will be greatly enriched with great grace. Consider to Hannah in the Old Testament, her name also means grace. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 1 from verse 8 to 11. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the high priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Notice, she prayed to the Lord in a time of need. She draws near to God to find grace. And in verse 11 it says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor will never come to his head. Now there are many similarities between Anna, Anna's prayer and fasting and that of Hannah's. Both their names mean grace, and both ladies had dimensions of the prophetic operative in their lives. Both ladies prayed fervently with fastings. And both women's fasting and prayer had a corporate focus, not so much a personal focus. They were both prophetic. Uh, Anna's prophesying, the scripture says Anna clearly was a prophetess, and her prophesying related to aspects concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this you'll find in the book of Luke. Hannah, on the other hand, gave birth to a prophetic dimension in the person of Samuel, who would emerge to become Israel's last judge, but one of Israel's greatest prophets, whose words never fell to the ground. So these two ladies, with embodiment of grace by the meanings of their names, were two women strong in the disposition of prayer, whose prayers had the outcomes of a prophetic reality that aided or gave definition to the will of God in their day. So I want to encourage us all, let's draw near to the Lord by strong prayer to access grace, to empower our function, uh, to make it relevant in the time in which we live. So I want to speak just briefly on finding grace now to help with the emphasis on grace to help, because the text in Ephesians, sorry, in Hebrews 4, let me read it again, just for emphasis. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest 
who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice the context here is human weakness. But one, a high priest who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's an aspect of grace called grace to help. Grace to help in a time of human weakness or a time of need, we need to draw near to God, to Christ, our high priest, who is able to sympathize with our human weakness and afford to us grace to help in time of need. Now, the word throne depicts rulership. Notice we are, we are encouraged to draw near to a throne of grace. And this throne depicts rulership, governance, and authority. It's the rulership, the governance, and the authority of God himself. God's throne, the place from which he rules, is characterized by grace. So the place and premise from which God governs is one of great mercy and great grace, which is given to us in a time frame of our lives that Hebrews calls a time of need. And when this grace comes to us in times of need, which is a time of human weakness, the effect will be to to help us. Now we all go through what the scripture calls a time of need. Now this phrase, time of need, doesn't refer to the fact that from time to time we might have specific needs, but rather it relates to a season or length of time where the sense of need is intense. And this usually is a protracted or a, an extended or prolonged period of time. As I've suggested, the word throne in throne of grace is symbolic of royal authority and highlights issues of dominion or our overcoming capacity. God wants you and I to overcome in our time of need because when we draw near to God through prayer in these times, what we're coming to is not to fi only find grace, but we access that grace from a throne of grace, which is the government of the grace of God. Dominion, overcoming, is through grace. Now you will see, I won't labor this point, we'll deal with this more thoroughly in a later session, but dominion, rulership, and grace are linked. For example, in Romans 5 verse 17, it says, For by the transgression of one, if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So the scriptures are clear. When you receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, this has the effect of causing you to reign, not in heaven, to reign in this life, even through Jesus Christ. So grace is, is critical to overcoming and rulership. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Amen. And our rulership and overcoming capacity is largely due to the deposit of grace within our lives. So help from God or grace to help from God in times of need and human weakness causes us to successfully surmount or journey through every time of need. The, again, the, the, the phrase time of need doesn't have to necessarily be a negative experience or season. Um, the word in the Greek, the phrase is eukairos, which means an opportune time or a well-timed period. And it simply suggests an opportune moment in which one can access greater grace from the God of, of all grace. Amazingly, the word eukairos, translated in English as time of need, well-opportune time, is 
a predetermined time in which God has de- has has set in your life for certain predetermined events in his calendar for you to come to pass and i think you can concur that from experience most often these take place in the midst of crises in the midst of need so a time of need is not necessarily suggestive of a negative time period because the positive outcome is the will of the lord being done in a very demonstrable fashion within your life and i pray that that god will give you grace to help in time of need this grace when it comes to you will ensure that certain preordained things for your life will take place in the name of the lord so we need help and i love the phrase grace to help in time of need the word help implies succor aid assistance given to 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 someone and we all need aid or assistance from god now help is not just something god gives help is who god is the bible says my help comes from the lord who is the maker of heaven and earth and god wants to grant unto you and i this help help in itself is a recognition of the need for aid outside of and even beyond yourself so it's a humble disposition when we say to someone help me you are saying within and of myself i cannot resolve this i need outside assistance when god helps us it's our recognition of our dependence upon him do you recall in in matthew 15 if you read the account there of the Syrophoenician woman who came to jesus to request of his assistance in delivering her, her daughter who was at home grievously vexed with a devil uh, you need to read the account in detail i'll just comment on it in short here the first time she came she got no response from the lord but the second request she made to him to help her was a very simple plea for help without any attempt to impress god with terminology in a prayer and she prayed the simple prayer this is recorded in matthew 15:25 it says she came and began to bow before him saying lord help me sometimes the most effective prayers are the shortest prayers but the most sincerest prayers she said lord help me and eventually the lord did respond to her request and her daughter was set free again god is your help and he wants to help there is an aspect of grace called grace to help in time of of need i want to encourage you to draw near to god in your time of need just to encourage you i want to read the following texts that denote god as our help psalm 121 verse 1 to 8 i will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where does my help come my help comes from the lord who made heaven and earth he will not allow your foot to slip he who keeps you will not slumber behold he who keeps israel will neither slumber nor sleep the lord is your keeper the lord is your shade on your right hand the sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night the lord will protect you from all evil the lord will keep your soul the lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore our help does come from the lord psalm 46 says the following god is our refuge and our strength a very present help in the time of trouble notice god is a present help is not an absent help is a help that is very near verse 2 says therefore we will not fear though the earth should be should change and though the mountain slip into the sea into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam though the mountains quake at its swelling pride sila there is a river whose streams make glad the city of god the holy dwelling places of the most high god is in her midst she will not be moved god will help her when morning dawns 
Psalm 63 verse 7. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Psalm 94 verse 17. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul soon would have dwelt in the abode of silence. Psalm 118 verse 7. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Very often, the help from the Lord will be expressed in acts of kindness or aid from people. Again, notice what David's saying here. The Lord is for me among those who help me. So certainly when we draw near to God in, in prayer, we find grace to help. God will certainly most help us in time of need. I want to encourage you to develop a very strong prayer disposition and to encourage you to pray without ceasing. Now, prayer is both an internal state as well as an outward act. The inward reality of a, of a ceaseless, prayerful spirit, that gives rise to occasions of external practice of prayer. But firstly, prayer is a constant inward reality. And then when occasions allow us, we actively engage in the act of prayer. But the imperative is that we must always pray unceasingly. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing, without stopping. So praying without ceasing refers to one's spirit that has got the capacity to be in unbroken communication and communion with God 24-7. Even when you're not actively engaged in some activity, or rather, even when you are rather engaged in, in some activity like work, sport, or the normality of, of life's engagement, even while you are asleep, your spirit has got the capacity to be in constant contact and communication with God. Because this, the New Testament clearly says in the book of Corinthians that your spirit is joined to the spirit of God and you are one spirit with him. If then his spirit is a spirit of prayer, and his spirit and your spirit are one, you can be, no matter what you are engaged with in life, in a constant state of communion, or at one union with God, in a disposition, an abiding disposition of prayer consistently. There are many occasions where I've experienced, even while sleeping, you wake up in the morning and you felt like you were in constant communion with God right through the night. Your spirit doesn't need rest. Your body and mind, your soul do. So we sleep. But our spirit um, lives above the, the limitations of, of earthly constraint. And that can be in constant communion with God in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray with all prayer and, and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Now I want to demonstrate from the life of Nehemiah how that he exemplified this capacity to consistently pray. When he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed and the gates burnt with fire, recall that he was a cupbearer to the king still in Babylon. And he heard that the plight of the Jewish people in that the walls of the city are destroyed, the gates are burned with fire. And he prayed literally, if you read the first chapter of Nehemiah chapter 1, he prayed for and fasted um, periodically over a period of four months. And this, the situation of God's people really affected his spirit so much. And so he made request to the king for a leave of absence to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he makes a request uh, to the king. Let me read the text. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found grace or favor before you, send me to Judah 
to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Send me that I may, I may rebuild it. So notice here there's a request for favor before an earthly authoritative figure representing the king of Babylon. So the favor or grace of God can be expressed in terms of favor or grace from people. Luke 2 says that Jesus grew in favor, which is grace, before God and before men. So there was an issue here that gripped Nehemiah. It was the welfare or the corporate state of God's people. So he requests of the king a leave of absence, and that would be grace afforded to him. And his passion is to rebuild the city of God. But notice, the text says, when the king said to him, what do you want from me, Nehemiah? Before he asks permission to leave, there's a little insertion between the request of the king and the answer of Nehemiah. And it's a short phrase where he said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So it would, just before hastening to, to utter his request before the king, Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. He didn't have to, but he did. This speaks to a cautiousness, a cautiousness in him and a complete reliance upon God. Um, the request from the king to the rational mind demanded an instantaneous response. It even seemed like this request of the king, what do you want from me, was an answer to Nehemiah's initial four-month praying and fasting. But nevertheless, before Nehemiah answers, he still prays to the God of heaven. Okay? Now, I don't believe he actually said to the king, let me pause before I answer you and pray to God. I believe he instantaneously responded to the king's request. But, so I pray to the God of heaven denotes that in the man's spirit, he was in such constant communion with God that his answer to the king was born out from his abiding inward prayerful disposition. So I want to encourage us to, like Nehemiah, live in a constant spirit of praying, but while also having concentrated, focused times of prayer like he did for four months. So he modeled both positions, the abiding disposition of the inward state of prayer in his spirit, as well as the outward practical times and occasions of external prayer. So he was praying inwardly in a consistent fashion and at also outward times of external prayer. I want to encourage us all to model our prayer life after this pattern. Okay? It's very, very important if we are to recruit more grace to get the job of rebuilding the city of God in the time in which we are living. Now, the fact that we are to pray without ceasing, in that our spirits are in constant communion with God, does not set aside the necessity to have times of planned and conscious practical prayer before God. Now, as we bring this broadcast to a close, I want to reference how Paul accessed the grace of God in suffering through prayer. I want to read the account in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 from verse 7 to 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times. Notice, I prayed or I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In this text, uh, the Apostle Paul was subjected to intense trial and sufferings. And he states, because of the abundance of revelations given to him by God. And this was done in order to ensure that he maintains a humble disposition. In his own words, lest I should be exalted above measure. And Paul called this suffering, or time of intense trial, a thorn in his flesh, which no one really knows exactly what it was. But the important thing here, Paul, in this context, prayed to God three times for God to remove this thorn in the flesh, or this source of intense suffering to his body. But instead of taking it away, God granted him grace, sufficient grace to sustain him through the suffering that he had to bear and endure. Note two things here. When we pray, we can access grace. The grace is given to us in time of need, according to Hebrews 4, to help our human weakness. And this is exemplified in Paul's example here. So grace will attend the person that prays to God. Secondly, also note here that at times the help that God gives us is not a removal of the trial, is not an eradication of the hardship, but grace to endure it because of the specific purpose the trial is meant to accomplish in us. Notice in Paul's context, the trial was permitted to keep him humble lest he, be, should, lest he should be exalted above measure because of the profundity and abundance of the revelations to which he was exposed. So God has a purpose in permitting us to endure certain trials. But he will give us grace to endure that so that the purpose attached to the suffering be accomplished in us. That is the help God gives. It's, it's, it's his grace. David too, excuse me, prayed three times when he was oppressed by Saul. You'll find this in Psalm 55, verse 16 and 17. Uh, Saul was oppressing him, hunting him, hounding him to destroy him. But he said, as for me, I will call upon God evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. And he will never suffer the righteous to be moved. David said in the same psalm. So Paul prayed three times. David prayed three times. Jesus himself prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was at the height of personal conflict within himself concerning his Father's will. You'll find this in Matthew 26 verse 44. Daniel himself also prayed three times a day. And no doubt he was a man of great grace. You'll see this in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. So every graceful man or woman in the scripture that was ever used by God to any significant degree was full of grace and they simultaneously were people of extremely strong prayer. And you'll see this in Jesus, in the examples of Moses, Elijah, David, Samuel, Anna, Hannah, Paul, uh, the Twelve Apostles, and, and others. So I pray that this broadcast has been a source of tremendous encouragement to you to, to baptize yourself in earnest prayer before God, to seek after Him diligently, for He will reward you with grace to help in times of your need, in your human weakness. You can be the strongest you've ever been because grace will attend you so that you can execute the will of God with great strength. So may you and I seek God earnestly with fervent, consistent prayer, so that we will be a people of great grace that our Father desires to be. May great grace and peace be with you. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace that is able to build you up and grant you an inheritance amongst all the saints that are sanctified. Bless you.
Might I also add in conclusion, the subject of prayer and fasting is dealt with in much greater depth and more thoroughly in my teaching series entitled Fasting, which is available on my website in both audio and PDF formats. Bless you. Bye-bye.